Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to meet the most interesting and inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. As we begin today's episode, I want you all to take a moment to explore what comes up for you when you think about national parks. Are you seeing imagery of a specific place that you've been to or want to visit? Are memories scrolling across the screen in your mind of family vacations, trips with friends, solo adventures? Recalling the sights, smells, and experiences we've had exploring these incredible places can truly be a visceral experience, something that brings us back to our intrinsic connection with nature. And it comes as no surprise that just like everywhere else, our treasured national parks are feeling the impacts of climate change. My ask for you, dear listeners, is to keep those images in mind as we move throughout the podcast today, because we are incredibly fortunate to be joined by someone who is an expert in national parks and the issues that they are facing. With us today is the founder and editor-in-chief for National Parks Traveler, Kurt Repencheck. Kurt, welcome to the show. It's an honor having you with us today. Hi, Jenna. Thanks for inviting me. So I like to start off each show by getting to know my guests a little better before we dive into the work and climate issues. And for listeners, outside of emailing, this is the first time that Kurt and I have spoken to each other. So you're hearing us get to know each other in real time, which is is so exciting. Um, so Kurt, Human Connection to Nature lives at the core of the Sea Change podcast. We spend a lot of time in this space talking about it. So I'm interested in hearing a little bit about some of your go-to ways to spend time outdoors and connect with nature. Um, Jenna, it's... Um... I'm a muscle-powered guy. I like to to get out and um, experience the, the national parks in nature by paddling canoes, kayaks, riding my bike, snowshoeing, hiking, backpacking. Um, if I can get out into the landscape and and really really interact with it, I guess with my own muscle power, that that's what I really enjoy the most. Yeah. So I, I kind of feel like I have to ask this, and it could be one of those situations where like when you ask a parent who their favorite child is and they say all of them, or like my mom says, I'm her favorite daughter and my brother is her favorite son because we're only, we're her only children. Do you have a favorite national park or are there any places in particular that are special to you? You know, it's, it's usually the, the, the park that I'm in and that's the safe answer to give. Um, that, that said, um, probably Yellowstone. I mean, I grew up in New Jersey. Um, every month we would get this yellow magazine in the, in the mailbox. And it, it took me to all these places around the world where you could explore nature and wildlife and whatnot. And I recall reading this one story about this guy who lived in this remote area of the United States where in the winter, his job was shoveling the snow off of a lodge and cabins to keep them from collapsing under the weight of the snow. And this was Yellowstone National Park. And it just captured my imagination. You know, you can imagine growing up in the, the East Coast in an urban area in this this faraway place. It just sounded so, so raw, so natural. Um, so Yellowstone, um, I fell in love with early on. Um, that said, um, my parents would always take us on uh, summer vacations. And uh, one of my first that I recall was going up to Maine in Acadia National Park. So I've, I've got a, a soft spot for Acadia and... Uh, of course, Shenandoah and Everglades and Grand Teton and and on and on and on. Oh gosh, I know they're all so special. It's I I was sitting here with a big smile on my face when you mentioned Acadia because I grew up in Maine and our family has a, a really quaint little cottage up near Acadia. So that was our our summer treat is that we'd get to go up there a few times and explore around. So I feel this deep connection to Acadia, but. You know, even Yellowstone, Shenandoah, all of these places you're mentioning, all the way down to, you know, some listeners that know my personal background a little better um, with uh, Assateague Island, National Seashore, Shinkateague Island, those areas I, I worked at as an intern and then a park ranger. And it, it's like almost like 
as they as they your mind scrolls through each and every one of them you're like yes that one's amazing that one's my favorite that so i think your your initial response of of whichever one i'm in is spot on because they're all spectacular and i think make it so clear when you're standing in those places or if you know you're out on a boat you're visiting those places you're like i understand why this place motivated somebody to put these strong protections around it, to keep it uh, this natural space so that people can go enjoy it. The wildlife that lives there can thrive. Um, They're just so incredible. And, you know, so now you work in a space where you, um, you pair your experience with journalism, with your knowledge and um, experience, as well as the research around and the management of national parks. I'm wondering, before we talk about National Parks Traveler, if you could share a little bit about what influenced you to pursue a career in journalism. Um, I was lousy at chemistry. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> I, um, I went to West Virginia University, and um, I thought I wanted to be a wildlife biologist, and, and I really wished I could have been a wildlife biologist, and that might have been you know, going back to, you know, reading National Geographic growing up, it just sounded like such a, such a wonderful career um, dealing with wildlife in all these unique areas. But um, um, chemistry was just, uh, I, I couldn't get it. I couldn't, couldn't capture it in my mind. I was great at biology. Um, you can see biology, you know, even if you have to look through a microscope, chemistry, it's a little, little wonky. And um, a, a good friend of mine um, suggested I try journalism. And um, it was kind of interesting because it was after the general um, uh, sign up for courses in the semester and I had to go talk to the professor and the only journalism course that was left was advanced. Um, and I hadn't had any journalism experience. I didn't do journalism in high school. And I went and talked to the professor and he goes, sure, you can you can join the class. And um, the rest is history, as they say. It, it came naturally to me. And um, it's fascinating because as a journalist, you can walk in any profession you want to. I mean, I, I have traveled with wildlife biologists to, to pull bears out of their dens in wintertime. I've been in MX missile silos. I've interviewed John Denver and uh, Bill Clinton. Um, it, it really allows you um, kind of like that Walter Smitty um, approach to life where you can, you can be anything you want for a day. Yeah. I really connect with that. I also, um, really struggled with chemistry and ended up getting a, my degree from university of Maine in communication and journalism for that exact reason. I, I think I was one of those students that, uh, probably could have benefited from a gap year or two to explore my interests and then come back. But, um, I went right into, to undergrad and, uh, had some trouble finding my way and realized that no matter what I ended up doing, everybody needs good communicators. And um, you're exactly right. I mean, it, what an adventure this career path has been. And it sounds like yours has been on a similar um, and, in my opinion, way more interesting trajectory than mine so far. <laughs> All because... It certainly has yeah. taken me to places and introduced me to individuals that I never could have imagined growing up. <laughs> so for listeners, Kurt worked for the Associated Press for 14 years, I believe it was. And Kurt, why did you end up making the transition from working with the AP to freelancing and then founding National Parks Traveler. What was that experience like for you? You know, I, I think most, if not all journalists, and, and you can say yay or nay to this, has a a mindset that they want to try freelancing because it sounds like such a, a wonderful career. I mean, you write the stories that you're interested in and you can write for a whole range of, of publications or, you know, even broadcast outlets. Um, and so it just seemed um, like something I wanted to try. And so um, when the opportunity arose, um, I said goodbye to the Associated Press and, and hello to, to freelance journalism. And um, that actually kind of, those two kicked me down the road to National Parks Traveler because during my AP career, I spent the last nine years in Wyoming as a, the correspondent in charge of the state. And of course, there's Yellowstone there and, and Grand Teton and uh, Devil's Tower and Bighorn Canyon and a lot of other 
federal lands. And so that was part of my daily diet in, in journalism with the AP. And um, I got to know the chief of communications for the uh, National Park Service. And um, when I left the AP to start my freelance career, um, he, he threw me an interesting um, job. Um, you probably didn't know this, Jenna, but I am the author of America's National Parks for Dummies. <laughs> I did know that, but that's only because I did research on you before <laughs> this episode. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that, that kind of kick-started things down down the road. And, and that title, which actually started out as the Idiot's Guide uh, to National <laughs> Parks. Um, and then the, the dummies bought it. And I was waiting for the morons to come along, but they never did. <laughs> There's um, still time. There's Well, <laughs> anyway, um, that really um, helped guide me down the path towards, you know, environmental journalism. I mean, I was already going down that path, but, but doing so much research on the national parks and, and, uh, I had actually started, um, back in the early days of blogging, um, national parks traveler and, um, as a means of generating story ideas that I could pitch to magazines. And, and then the, the dot-com um, boom came along and a lot of the magazine clients that I would, had been writing for either went out of business or they really reduced um, the size of stories. And it, it, um, it really affected the bottom line. While at the same time, there were more and more readers coming to my blog to learn about the national parks and some of the issues that they were confronted with. Do you remember the first national park that you wrote about for National Park Traveler? No. <laughs> that was 17 years ago. <laughs> We'll have to go back and, and, and look at that. Um, I wasn't trying to put you on the spot, but as you were talking, I was like, I wonder what the very first story was. Uh, we'll, we'll find that. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of the first stories I can tell you, I started um, Traveler in August of 2005. And in 2006, there was a, a big fight, if you will, over the management policies of the National Park service and this is kind of like the uh, the, the compendium the, the the rule book that the, the park service follows um internally for its managers and whatnot and this was during the um, administration of george w bush and there was a real effort to turn those management policies upside down to put it you know bluntly and um i wrote a lot about that um early on and that that's yeah yeah i'm a news junkie um for my days with the AP. And, and so I write a lot about news and the national parks and the national park service. Yeah. So will you tell me more about the national parks traveler and, and sort of what drives you all as an organization and why do you focus on national parks? You know, as I, as I said, I'm a, I'm a news junkie. And so there's a lot of news out there about the national parks and about the national park service. I mean, there, there's, beautiful places to visit, beautiful experiences to be had. And there's a lot of issues that aren't so visible to the American public. Um, early, early days with National Parks Traveler, um, I had asked a friend of mine who at the time was working for the Wilderness Society. I said, how come there's no concern over what's going on with the national parks, the national park system in the country as opposed to Forest Service lands or BLM lands? And she told me there's this perception that everything is fine with the national parks. And it's, it's really not. I mean, there are, there are a lot of issues. Um, during National Parks Week a couple of weeks ago, I wrote, I wrote an editorial that things are not as rosy out there across the national park system as, as might appear. And so what drives me with the national park, with National Parks Traveler, is to try and inform the American public who own these national parks, who own this incredible system, to alert them to, to some of the issues that exist out there with hopes that, you know, they will rise up and put pressure on their congressional delegations to, to make the changes that are necessary. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's such important work because just for just your kind of general person that would visit a park, you see this incredible place, but there is, like you said, so much work that goes into managing them, maintaining them, funding them. Um, and, you know, something that's been pretty pretty high up in the news cycle, I feel like because of the bipartisan infrastructure bill recently was being talked about a lot, um, 
is the, you know, like the backlog of maintenance in the parks. And so I think, you know, things like that, or like when I worked at Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge, where you have a wildlife refuge that has a stretch of national seashore uh, that's a part of it, but they're managed separately from Fish and Wildlife Service and Park Service. Stories like that, that kind of highlight the complexities of what it actually takes to um, offer these spaces and keep these places clean, healthy, even in the perspective of, um, you know, when I was working on the fish and wildlife side and we manage for wildlife, it's keeping everything natural and wild and then partnering with park service who managed more for recreation and enjoyment and um, kind of pairing those two things together to create this beautiful natural space where people could come and enjoy. I think that that is just like one example that um, sticks out in my mind of the hundreds of thousands, I'm sure. So definitely listeners go check out National Parks Traveler because, um, you know, there's so much going on there behind this beautiful imagery and beautiful place, whatever place you're thinking of that I asked you to call to at the beginning of the show. Um, I'm sure each of those places has so many stories to be told. Um, and National Parks Traveler has probably told some of them. Um, so what aspects of national parks do you focus on and why? I know that you've talked about, you know, kind of like what's big in the news cycle. Um, you know, I saw on your website that you just, you focus on that such a wide range of things that I think it would be interesting to dive into those a little bit deeper for listeners to get a, a clearer idea of the, just the breadth of, of things you all cover. Yeah. Um, you know, my underlying philosophy is that, you know, there are 423 units of the national park system, maybe 424 if you count Amachi, um, the latest addition, which the park service is waiting to actually acquire the site. Um, so even the park service is saying there's only 423 today. But my underlying philosophy is that every one of those sites has its own fan base, you know, who loves that individual unit of the national park system. And so I think it's it's the traveler's responsibility to to try and generate some sort of content for each and every one of those sites out there across the park system. And you know we haven't gotten there yet, but if we strive for that on a on a day in day out basis, you know I think we'll get there. Um, in a, in a larger view, um, I'm a generalist. You know I I know a little about a lot of things, not much about anything. But I, I do know that the, the parks are fascinating places, whether you're looking at, you know, one of the ologies, um, biology or, or um, paleontology, archaeology, and on and on and on, even sociology. There are stories across the national park system that deserve to be told. Um, <clears throat> one of the things we've been working on for most of the last year is um, about invasive species invading the national park system, um, both vegetation um, in terms of like Brazilian pepper and melaleuca, which are uh, ornamentals that were brought in, brought into the country um, for landscape purposes and which are taking over some places in the national parks, um, along with Russian olive to the well-known uh, Burmese python invasion of Everglades National Park. And um, we were just down in Everglades a couple of weeks ago reporting on those stories and how the, the park is making good inroads against Melaleuca and Brazilian pepper, um, not so much against Burmese pythons, but, you know, to, to give you a, a sense of how I like to, you know, sample everything. Um, one morning we joined a, a ranger, the director of uh, education down there, Yvette Cano, and she took us into a cypress dome on a, a sluice log and this is where you just park your car on the side of the road and you, you head out into this wet, marshy type of environment and into this forest of bald cypress trees that are just full of epiphytes, of um, um, bromeliads, um, just beautiful um, plants that are just, you know, clinging onto these bald cypress trees. And there's ferns and there's alligators and, and birds. And it was just, you know, a, a great experience that... Um, you know, I think I think too many visitors don't don't look for that type of thing. They they stick to the main roads, and um, 
you know, it's as simple at, at Everglades National Park and even um, Big Cypress National Preserve next door. It's as simple as parking your car and walking into these places. And it's just a totally different perspective of a national park. Yeah. And will you walk me through Traveler's editorial process? So we're, we're sort of touching on just how many stories there are to be told out there. And I can imagine just from a perspective of trying to, you know, manage a, a publication in a website, that could be overwhelming potentially. So I'm interested in, in peeking behind the curtain to get a better understanding of what makes a story compelling and worth telling for you. Um, okay. First of all, um, if you want to peek behind the curtain, um, <laughs> you're, you're talking to the, the one and only staffer at National Parks Traveler. Um, I'm the editor-in-chief, I'm the founder, I'm um, the IT guy, I'm the sales guy, um, all those things. Um, I do weekly podcasts, um, we've launched uh, monthly webinars, and it, it is a daunting proposition. Um, fortunately, I went right from college to the Associated Press, and they, they really ingrained in me how to, how to chunk out the content, and um, I, I know People are amazed at uh, how much there is on the traveler, but I'm fortunate in that I've got a great network of freelancers across the country. Um, there's one in upstate New York. There's one in the, the Washington D.C. area. There's one in Florida. Um, one down in Texas. One in uh, the L.A. San Francisco area. One up in uh, Washington State. And so those along with you know a few other um freelancers who i, I sometimes commission um to get a story we keep things rolling and um you know what what captures my eyes for a story you know it's all over the board jenna it really is i mean for instance one of my writers just um, filed a story on plastics pollution and how that affects national seashores and the wildlife that go to the national seashores or, or that are found at national seashores um Another story is coming from Point Reyes National Seashore in California and the, the management battle, if you will, between the native Thule elk and livestock interests that actually graze cattle inside the National Seashore. Um, I'm going to be working on a story about the, the wildfire danger. I mean, here it is early May, and um, we've all already seen some devastating wildfires in the southwest in New Mexico. It's about a month early for wildfires in those areas. Um, and it just goes on and on and on. Um, yeah, it's like little bite-sized bite -sized glimpses into like little tastes, I guess, of of like a smattering of the parks. I like that. I think it's it allows people to explore their curiosity and learn about something that, you know, maybe it's a place they'll never even go to. Yeah, that we do. We do some armchair uh, journalism, if you will. But... Um, you know, I get a lot of National Park Service releases as well as a lot of releases from, from other organizations that are, are dealing in the, the natural world, so to speak. And um, so obviously we have a lot of um, spot news stories. I mean, I, I view the traveler as a hybrid between a, a daily newspaper and a, and a magazine in that we do do daily news coverage as well as feature coverage. And, you know, not everybody's going to be sitting down to the computer and Googling, you know, wastewater treatment plant failures in the national parks, um, which do happen. And so, you know, we try, we try to weave in those feature stories um, about, you know, the sluice log of Everglades National Park. We, you know, we're going to, we've done a podcast on that and we're going to do a written story on that as well as a, a short video on that. You know, that type of experiential story that the general public can, can take part in when they go to Everglades or, you know, if you're going to, to Yellowstone, you know, something about, you know, geyser gazing, that kind of thing, or um, Acadia National Park, um, tide pooling. And, and because, as I said, people aren't going to be Googling necessarily for those hard news stories about the national park system, but they are looking for information on how best to enjoy the national parks. And my hope is that they'll find some of that content on National Parks Traveler and that they'll stick around and read some of the other stories about the issues that the, the park system and the park service are confronted by. Will you share the name of your podcast? I feel like there's so much space out there for all of us to exist that I feel like if people are listening to my show, they probably are interested in your show. So what, what's the name of your show and when does it come out? 
it's just National Parks Traveler. <laughs> Easy enough really, to remember. <laughs> really provocative and thought-provoking, yeah. It's on brand. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's all about branding. comes out every Sunday. Um, it, it, people can find it on all the usual outlets, Spotify, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, radio.com, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those are, are usually 40 to 45-minute shows, and it's kind of the, the news magazine approach. Um it might be uh, about an issue around the national parks or it might be um, exploring the national parks in some form or fashion. We also occasionally um, toss in what we call audio postcards from the parks. And um, when I was down in um, Everglades um, with some of my colleagues, we walked down the Anhinga Trail um, at Royal Palm, which is the go-to trail for visitors to, to Everglades National Park. And we did an audio postcard, just a five or six minute um, audio cast about, you know, we're walking down and we're describing what we're seeing and you're hearing the birds in the background. And we try and throw those in from time to time to give, um, you know, listeners um, an idea of some of the things they might want to do. Um, I've done one of those from um, Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, which I got to visit back in um, November. Um, so, Yeah. And as I said, we, we just launched and, um, launched a, a weekly webinar or a weekly, a monthly webinar in April. And um, the, the first episode was just um, getting our feet wet. And it was just about overlooked gems in the national park system because nearly 300 million people visited the national parks in 2021. And this number boggled me, but roughly half of those 150 million people went to just 25 national parks out of the 420 in the system, which is just mind boggling because, you know, you, you get away from the Yellowstones and the Yosemites and the Grand Canyons. And there really are some interesting places out there, both culturally, historically, and, and even scenery wise. Um, it's just uh, the, the breadth of the park system is amazing. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest Questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline like what you're hearing and want to support the network sponsorship packages are now available go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more you know that that overcrowding of i don't know if it's necessarily overcrowding but that's the word that came to my mind because i was thinking about acadia and in recent years it's a pretty unique place in terms of a national park because it isn't this sprawling place that, you know, a Yellowstone or a Glacier or a Shenandoah are. So when that many people, we've seen this big increase, I, I definitely think because, um, you know, the pandemic has people really craving time outdoors and looking for new ways to get outside and be social. Um, it, it feels like Acadia in recent years is seeing this really interesting challenge of how do you allow access for everybody that wants to go and appreciate and spend time there, the ability to do so without damaging the park. Um, and I, I can imagine that that's happening elsewhere, but that was just sort of a side tangent that my brain went off of because I'm sitting here in Maine thinking about Acadia. But, <laughs> uh, but there are, I, I think it's, you know, oh, the, way, the reason I got on that, that mental trail is because when, I've been, when I go up to our camp um, near the park, I've been starting to look for those little hidden gems that maybe I don't go to Acadia this time that I'm up there and maybe I go check out something else that's nearby 
and they're almost empty, all the places that I've gone to because everybody's so targeted in Acadia. And I will never tell anyone not to go to Acadia, but rather I will say that there is a lot of great places in that region. Um, and I imagine it's the same for every national park, especially those ones that you noted that are, you know, incredibly busy and seeing the majority of people visiting there. Yeah. And overcrowding is an issue. It's not a minor issue. Um, you mentioned Acadia. You can look at Yellowstone. You can look at uh, Zion National Park in, in southwestern Utah or Arches where they've implemented a reservation system or, you know, Yosemite. And you can just go on and on and on. Rocky Mountain National Park is has a crowding problem. And there were so many comments to the park in recent years about how those crowds have really impacted the national park experience that people aren't going back because it's so miserable with the crowds and the congestion that they encounter. And um, so the park staff at Rocky Mountain is really exploring this issue and trying to figure out the best way to, to manage um, crowds so it doesn't impact the, the national park experience. And that's that's a big thing. And, you know, I've talked a lot about that in, in recent months with my colleagues and with um, guests on, on our podcast you know, what is the national park experience? And I think if you start boiling that down, different generations will come up with a different answer. I mean, um, I grew up in the last century and, um, you know, um, I think my net first national park visit was in the 1960s to Acadia National Park. And, you know, you didn't have the crowds that you have today. And so that was the experience I grew up with. And that's the experience I continue to look for. Whereas, you know, somebody today in their, their early 20s, you know, the crowds might not mean anything to them. Um, it's an interesting question on what is your idea of the perfect national park experience? Um, it's a tough one to answer. And I think the park service is grappling with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, who has access, who doesn't, if, if there is the issue of overcrowding, um, that's a whole can of worms for sure. And I, you know, I know we're talking about in some ways how parks are changing with the overcrowding and people visiting, um, but they're changing in so many other ways. And I feel like this is a great time to to talk a little bit about the ebook that Traveler published called "Changing Climate, Changing Parks: Climate Impacts to Our National Parks Are Here." Um, will you touch on that a little bit about you know the motivations behind releasing the ebook, pulling it together, creating this this um, this look at how our climate change is impacting our parks. You know, so much of the national park system is based in the natural world. And so it's being impacted by climate change in some form or fashion. And so, um, boy, you can, you can go back a decade or more and there's always been some sort of story tied to natural phenomena, whether they're wildfires or whether they're hurricanes or whether they're blizzards that has an impact on the national parks. And so we've constantly been following these issues and then you start piecing them together. And as, as the, the recognition of climate change is, is really impacting the globe, um, it becomes more and more accepted. You start looking across the national parks and you can say, oh yeah, it, it, you can see it there at, at Cape Lookout national seashore by the, the hurricane um, Dorian back in 2019 that, you know, Cape Lookout is three barrier islands, roughly 56 miles long. And Dorian, Hurricane Dorian in September of 2019 created 50 breaches, roughly 50 breaches in those barrier islands, almost one a mile. Um, you look at um, more recently Cape Hatteras national seashore just next door earlier this year, um, we had a house topple into the Atlantic Ocean because of the, the combination of sea level rise as well as, you know, storm surges and, and barrier islands move around. And so um, the hurricanes continued to, to push the sand away. And, and all of a sudden, this house that once upon a time might have been 200 feet from the water was now on the brink of the water and then fell into the water. You know, you can look out west at the wildfires and so, you know, as more and more of these events happened, you know, Traveler naturally covered them and just seemed to make sense to, to help, again, educate the general public about what's going on in the world, in the natural world, in the national park system, 
to put them all together in in one one anthology, if you will, to point out the the different impacts that climate change is bringing to the national parks. And are there trends that you're noticing across all of the parks as um, it relates to how climate change is impacting them? And I, you know, I imagine because they're all so diverse and in so many different places and ecosystems that that might be tough, but they're, they're, I'm sure there are trends. Um, do you notice anything that is sort of like a commonality across the board? Boy, that's a, that's a tough question. I never, I never sat down and thought about it that way because, you know, you look at, you look at Everglades National Park and sea level rise is impacting the, the mangrove barrier and you're getting more brackish water and in another couple of decades, you know, Florida's going to be underwater. You know, that's not the type of problem you're running into at, at Yellowstone National Park. But what you are seeing is that the, uh, the winters are getting shorter, so to speak. There, there's going to be less snowpack. There is less snowpack. There are more days of, of rain than snowfall in Yellowstone National Park. And that, that carries ramifications down, you know, to, to stream flow and, and the, the health of fisheries in Yellowstone, as well as um, it makes it easier for, um, uh, or makes it tougher for, for wolves to, to chase down elk, because if there's no snow on the ground, the elk can be more maneuverable as opposed to getting bogged down in, in drifts of snow and trying to get away from a pack of wolves. Um, you've got um, down at Point Reyes National Seashore in California, you know, sea level rise and, and storms are, are slowly eroding you know, the sand dunes, um, the beach dunes there. So, you know, it really, it really varies. You can go up to Alaska and the permafrost is melting. You know, there was a, in Denali National Park, um, this slow moving landslide um, and, and very slow over periods of a few years that, that finally took out um, a section of the Denali Park Road. And I'm almost sure that was related to climate change because, you know, the permafrost was warming up and becoming more, more um, maneuverable, more flexible under pressure, and was moving away. Um, so really, you just look across the national park system and, and into these different ecosystems, and you can see signals of climate change. Yeah, I, I think I almost think of it as um, you know they're all being impacted by climate change, but it's all it's showing up in in totally different ways depending on where the park is. And, you know, that's, that goes beyond parks too. You know, we're all feeling the effects of climate change right now across the globe. And, um, that's just sort of how it's, it's going to go as we keep moving through time is if we're, you know, even if we do stop all emissions right now, we're still going to feel the impacts of it for years to come. And, um, you know, Everywhere is going to be impacted differently, but we're all going to be and are being impacted. And we really are. Yeah. And, you know, because this show is, is housed on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, and then, you know, this is the Sea Change Podcast, I'm curious to hear more about coastal parks. So, are there any distinct climate challenges along the coastlines and offshore? And I'm kind of thinking of my experience of of being on, you know, coastal Virginia, this was a while ago now even, but we were still seeing issues then with, you know, sea level rise and storms and, um, you know, the Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge and Astigue Island, they, it's a series of barrier islands. So what you were mentioning with um, the issues with barrier islands earlier, we saw that there. I was there for Hurricane Sandy and that was, you know, terrifying. The whole island went underwater. The roads to get to and from the island all washed out. And so you think about that was back in like 2011, 2012, that time frame. Um, you know, it was bad then. And these are things that, that coastal parks are just continually dealing with every single day. And the issues of beach renourishment, if you do it or don't you, or you just let the barrier island do what barrier islands do. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear a little more about, you know, if, if you have thoughts on, on coastal parks and how they relate to climate change and how they're being impacted. You know, um, climate change is here and it's continuing to evolve and we're, we're seeing it manifest itself in different ways. And if you, if you step away from the alarm of what it's doing and you, you look at some of the the natural um, mechanisms at work. I'll give you. I'll give you two examples. Um, back in 1988, Yellowstone burned. 
it made global news, um, the wildfires that swept across Yellowstone. And I was working for the Associated Press then, and um, I went up to the park a, a couple times that summer to report on the fires and the changes they were bringing. And my first impression was, oh my God, Yellowstone's burning down. And then by the end of that summer, the fires were still going, but you could see regrowth where those fires had been. And basically those fires had come through and cleaned up a lot of the forest, got rid of a lot of the forest duff because there'd been so many years of, you know, don't, don't let it burn. Don't, don't let the fires, you know, put them out as quickly as you can. And yet this fire came through and it really provided this cleansing um, um, treatment to the, a lot of the forest up there in Yellowstone. So you mentioned Hurricane Sandy and yeah, it roared up the coastline and at Fire Island National Seashore, it cut a breach in the uh, Otis Pike um, wilderness area up there. And what that breach did, which still exists to this day, a decade later, is it allowed a lot of the ocean water to go into the the, the back sound and I, I forget exactly what it's called, the back bay, um, whatever. But it really refreshed that back bay area and really the wildlife, the sea life benefited from that because it got this exchange of seawater and uh, really improved the health of that back bay and the, the marine life that benefited from it. And so you've, you've got these different things that are going on with climate change and sea level rise and whatnot, and hurricanes. And it's kind of interesting um, to see some of the benefits that are bringing. At the same time, you know, Fire Island, Cape Cod, Assateague, um, Cape Hatteras, Cape Lookout, they're all barrier islands. Barrier islands were designed to move around. And the, one of the problems that we're seeing is that people like to have their homes on the coast, on um, look out to the ocean and whatnot. And so we've got the, these barrier islands rubbing up against hardened landscapes on the mainland. And I think, you know, we're, we're starting to see a lot of the, the dynamics that that creates. And it, it impacts not just human life, but also marine life or, or waterfowl that, you know, for so long have used these barrier islands um, as, as migratory stopovers for, for, you know, feeding or whatnot for nesting. And, you know, as those barrier islands get squeezed, we're losing habitat habitat for marine life and for waterfowl. Yeah. Um, I, I think barrier islands are just so, they're so fascinating. And I was, this image came up of the, the lighthouse that's on um, Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge for people that go to visit. It almost looks like it's like right in the middle of the island now. So if anyone wants like a, a real live look at what barrier islands do, that lighthouse originally was right on the edge of the island. And it's moved so much that it now looks like it's it was like randomly placed in the middle of the island. So they are this like incredibly dynamic ecosystem that's always moving. Um, and yeah, that that poses a lot of challenges, especially when you build structures on them. And I, I imagine that you and your co-authors connect to all of the stories in this anthology in some way, shape or form, or else they wouldn't have ended up in the in the book. Um but are there any stories in particular that stick with you or stand out above others that um, was included in, in the changing climate, changing parks? You know, um, Jenna, I live in Utah in the, in the Southwest or the Northern Rockies, depending on who, who's making the description. And so, you know, wildfires are incredible forces of nature and we're seeing more and more wildfires. Um, last summer was extremely smoky we had a fire not five miles from, from our house and, you know, we were ready. We had our go bags ready to go because of the wildfires. You also have um, in the Southwest, the, the longest drought, I think they said in 1200 years. And that is really affecting the Colorado river, which really affects Lake Powell, which really affects Lake Mead. And so you're seeing, you know, the two largest reservoirs in the United States shrink down to levels that haven't been seen since they first started filling those two reservoirs. And so, you know, one of the, the pieces in, in a changing climate, changing parks is Grand Canyon struggling river. 
and how the combination of um, reduced snowpack or snow melt going into the Colorado River is impacting the river as well as invasive species, um, quagga mussels and the, the threat that they bring to the Colorado River as it flows through Grand Canyon National Park. Um, back in 2021, I did a, the fall of 2021, I did a big package of stories on, on how the park service in the West was um, dealing with wildfires that are that are more more dangerous if you can believe that because they're, they're harder to predict under climate change and how the parks were, were trying to um, prepare their landscapes for for those fires and what they could do to um, discourage them so to speak um, by letting some natural fires burn and create mosaic patterns across the, the landscape that are less susceptible to these massive burns that we've been seeing in in uh, California um, of course we've got um, you know, a story in there on um, the restoration of the Everglades, the river of grass from Lake Okeechobee down to Florida Bay and what that could do for the environment there and even um, play a role against sea level rise um, by by improving the, the, the sheet of water that flows down across the landscape into into Florida Bay. Yeah. And, you know, for, for listeners, you're getting a little sneak peek into changing climate, changing parks. And I encourage you to go buy a copy, check it out, see what you connect with, see what you learn, um, as well as tune into the National Parks Traveler podcast. And it's springtime here in the Northern Hemisphere, meaning we're gearing up for National Parks busy season that will run, you know, all the way through fall. I think national parks are incredible in the winter too, but I know that this kind of warmer season is when most people tend to visit. I'm sure quite a few of our listeners are planning on visiting a national park or a seashore or a place housed within the national park system. What do you want people to be either aware of or pay attention to or do next time they visit a national park? You know, before, before I get into answering that question, Jenna, um, it's snowing here in Utah, so um, it hasn't quite oh, warmed wow. up yet. <laughs> <laughs> We're like finally out of it, I think, yeah. with like asterisks, I think, in Maine. It has been also a very cold, wet spring, but um, I, I feel like people are probably going to get mad at me for saying this because you like never say you're out of it because gonna, we're going to get like a snowstorm tomorrow if I say it, but... I feel like we, we might be there. <laughs> Great. Well, I think we got a little bit more snow to come um, before summer sets in. But, you know, one thing we forgot to mention, I think, um, National Parks Traveler is a nonprofit news organization. Um, we're not backed by any large corporation, not backed by any foundation. We really rely on reader and listener donations to, to survive and to report on the parks. And we put that money right back into um, hiring freelance writers to report on these issues. As far as um, we also rely on sales of changing climate, changing parks to help um, accomplish our mission. Um, later this uh, um, spring, we're going to release uh, the essential RVing guide to national parks because there is no one guide that is out there that um, RVers can use to plan their trips across the national park system. They have to uh, go uh, park website by park website to to try and figure out, you know, will my RV fit into the national park campground there and what, um, what hookups are available. As far as what I'd like people to do when they go into the national parks, you know, use all your senses because the parks offer so many different sounds and smells and, and textile feelings, uh, substances you can feel. You know, for example, you know, I mentioned earlier in, in our conversation about that slough slog down in Everglades National Park. That was something that I never thought I would enjoy. And it was a great, great time, you know, to get out and experience that type of environment. And most people who go into the national parks, you know, drive down the highway, they stop at the overlooks, they go to the lodge, they, you know, go get something to eat, and then they go on to their next park and they're missing so much. You know, they, they say that the parks are overcrowded and that the solution to that is to walk a mile from the parking lot and you won't find those crowds. And that's absolutely true. Um, so I think, you know, my advice would be to to don't be afraid to, to walk down the trail um, to experience something that is totally um, 
unique for you. You know, if you're coming from, you know, a coastal area and you go into the Rocky Mountain West, I mean, it's totally different ecosystem, totally different environment. Um, and it's a wonderful exploration and vice versa, you know, going back to the coastal parks. Um, tide pooling is a fascinating activity in the national park, whether you're at the Olympic National Park on Rialto um, Bay or Rialto Point, and um, whether you're in Acadia um, with the tide pooling there, there's just so many different experiences that I think so many people are in a rush to, to count coup in terms of how many parks they've visited. And they, they do windshield tours in national parks. And I think you really need to, to stop and, and take some time. I was shocked when a, a past superintendent of Yellowstone told me that the average stay was, I think, three and a half days. And there's no way you can totally experience and appreciate Yellowstone in three and a half days. And I know you mentioned um, a few ways people can support you all, but um, how can people follow along with your work? Are you all on social media? Will you um, call out your your website URL? How can people get involved? And if there are other ways that um, people can support National Parks Traveler, how can they do that? You know, as I said, it's uh, nationalparkstraveler.org, um, um, 501c3 nonprofit news organization. You know, I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm actually moving into my fifth decade of journalism, professional journalism. And as such, I, I appreciate that different generations consume their media in different fashions. I mean, I like magazines. I like books. I like to hold it in my hands. My kids don't like to do that. They, you know, like to listen to podcasts or, or read it online, read it on their phones. And so we strive to present our information in as different as a in as many different mediums as possible. And so nationalparkstraveler.org, you know, you can read as many stories as you want, where it's a free website. Like I said, we depend on donations to survive. You can um, listen to our weekly podcasts. Um, you can listen to them as you're driving to your next national park or flying to your next national park. Um, we're on Facebook, um, National Parks Traveler. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Um, I think I covered it all. The one thing we haven't done is a, a hard publication. And with over 300 million visitors to the national parks, the logistics just don't work out <laughs> in terms of how many um, magazines or books we'd have to um, print. But we are um, doing ebooks, um, as, as we've mentioned, you know, changing climate, changing parks. Um, we'll, we'll have the RV guide to um, national parks coming out. And then we're going to start working into um, guides to parks in the Southwest to, to open up some people's eyes to archaeology, um, ancient cultures, um, and parks that interpret those cultures today. Um, I can envision doing um, an ebook on the national seashores and, and all the different experiences on national lakeshores and, and on and on and on. You know, one thing that really fascinates me and talking about people overlooking some of the smaller gems the civil war era parks both both in the east and those out in the plains you know after the war was over um, fort laramie national historic site in wyoming is a fascinating place and it's been described as the 19th century truck stop because you had so many different people and and cultures going through there on you know they had trappers you had hunters you had immigrants you had you know the the merchants all going through this small little outpost in, in eastern Wyoming. There's so much culture out there. It's really incredible when you sit back and start thinking about it. Yeah, there's so much culture, so much to learn, so much history there right in front of our own eyes. And I'm really looking forward to this Southwest guide that you all are putting together because I um, actually went to Saguaro National Park for the first time ever a couple years ago and absolutely fell in love with it. I felt like I was on a different planet because I am like, uh, you know, anywhere that I grew up, we moved around a lot because I was in a coast, my dad was in the Coast Guard, but every place we lived was like pretty heavily forested, you know, not, it was a totally different climate. It kind of felt like I was on like Mars. It was, it was, it, it, I don't know what it did to my brain, but it was just in a completely new experience for me that was so eye-opening and I absolutely fell in love with it. So I certainly will be looking for that guide because I, I it like sparked this drive in me to go back and explore more of the Southwest for sure. 
And it might be hard to envision, but climate change is really impacting these parks. I've got a writer working on a story on how the increasingly hot temperatures and, and arid climate is impacting saguaros and other cacti in the Southwest. And so it's, it's not a pretty picture. But, you know, one other thing in terms of all these overlooked gems, I mean, a lot of them can be added onto your trips to whether you're going to Yellowstone or whether you're going to Acadia. Um, the, the highway system today makes it really easy to visit a lot of these places. This summer, I'm going out to Iowa for a wedding, and um, I've planned my, my trip along I-80 going east and then I-70 coming west, and I'm going to hit at least four, four units in the National Park System, places I haven't, haven't been to before, and really looking to, to see the stories that they tell and interpret. I have yet to visit Iowa, but in recent years, I have heard so many good things of about Iowa that it's it's uh, it's a new thing on my list to go see because uh, it sounds like an incredibly beautiful place. And I, I'll let you know. Yeah, have yeah, definitely. About, <laughs> have you heard about corn sweat? I haven't, but I am interested. Tell me more. <laughs> Well, they, they grow so much corn in Iowa and, and corn had so much moisture in it that it really apparently boosts the humidity level. And so I, my niece lives in Iowa and um, I said, so what's the weather going to be like in, in late, late June? And she goes, temperatures will be in the mid eighties and humidity will be a hundred percent. So I'm not sure I'm looking sweat. for uh, oh That's corn sweat. I'm not looking forward to it. That's wild. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. It really is. So as we wrap up, I do something of a lightning round with every guest on the show where I ask everyone the following questions. So we'll start with, what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we are facing today? Oh, I think climate change without without question. I mean, it's infe- it's affecting all of North America, all the world. I mean, whether you live on the coast or you're in the Rocky Mountains, um, we're being changed. The, the environment we're living in is changing before our eyes in many aspects. And what are you energized about moving forward? What am I energized about? I like to paddle. I've got some paddle trips on, on my agenda. But, <laughs> but that and, and that getting, getting out to more parks that um, I haven't experienced before, because as you know, we've discussed, there's so many facets in the national park system and so much to explore. And, and yeah, some parks might, you know, half a day or a day there, but they all hold incredible stories and it might strike you. And something about a, a unit might pull at you, you know, um, younger generations, it might, it might encourage them or convince them that this is the career I want to get involved with, you know, not necessarily a National Park Service career, but maybe as a botanist, maybe as a, a fisheries expert, maybe it as a, an archaeologist. And, you know, that's what these parks or a historian um, these parks put those professions on display. So this last one's a bit of a two-part question. You can choose your own adventure with it. There are no really rules here, so you can answer it however you feel compelled to. What is the best advice you've ever been given? And what advice do you have for our listeners? You know, as a, as a journalist, I guess the, the best advice I was ever given was from a, a managing editor of the Associated Press years ago, um, when he said there are no stupid questions. And I think that's that's true. I mean, it might seem stupid at the time, but you don't know what the answer is going to be in response. And it might totally open a new perspective or a new avenue for, for exploration as a journalist. Um, you know, advice for listeners is, it's you know, something I touched on earlier is when you go out into the national park system to, to really use your senses and try and break away from the, the mongering hordes that go out. Um, you know, if you go to Yellowstone National Park, if you want to watch Old Faithful erupt, don't do it at two o'clock in the afternoon when there's, you know, thousand or more people crowded around the apron of Old Faithful. Go out after dark, go out, um, either on a, 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 a full moon night or, um, you know, when without the full moon, when the stars are just, you know, glimmering so, so much overhead, because you'll be out there alone and it's a totally different experience. If you go to Everglades National Park, go walk the Anhinga Trail after dark when everybody's back in their rooms in Homestead or wherever and listen to the alligators. Um, just try and try and look at a different approach to visiting the national parks to to get away from the crowds and, and really appreciate nature in its raw form 
Well, Kurt, thank you so much for joining me today. This was an absolute pleasure and thank you for the important work that you do. I look forward to following along with National Parks Traveler and supporting you all however I can. Well, thanks, Jenna. It's been a lot of fun and uh, look forward to catching up down the road. Yeah, definitely. And for listeners, if you like what you heard and want to hear more of this show and others like it, you can find us at the American Shoreline Podcast Network, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribes, rates, and reviews are very much appreciated. If you enjoy social media, you can connect with us on Facebook at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today. And on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Coastal News 365. If you'd like to connect with me personally, I am at Jenna Valente on Instagram and at Yenna Benna on Twitter. So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines. Mm-hmm.